You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So, pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. If you've been on our website before or listened to any of our previous podcast episodes, you'll know that we like to say that we share stories from the outback, the good, the bad, and the dusty. Well, today in our episode, we are bringing you the dusty because I'm talking to Dusty and Jody Grant, who are true characters of the outback and some of the most salt of the earth people I've ever met. They've worked around Australia and seen a fair bit, including some pretty unusual stuff that you'd have to see to believe. In this episode, they share their journey as station managers and tell some classic yarns about life in remote Australia. Today's episode is sponsored by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds has been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the Northern Territory too. Their early wiener product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young wieners and has been developed with their high-fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. Okay, it's disclaimer time. The following story is about to detail some very risky and dangerous behaviour, and we strongly advise that you do not try this at home. Enjoy the story for what it is, but please do not try this. Living where we do when we don't see much rain at all. In fact, I think my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter has seen rain, proper rain, perhaps three times in her life. She really doesn't know what this thing falling from the sky is. She's rather afraid of the rain. However, living on dirt roads with creeks and rivers, if we do get a big rain, it can make access in and out of the station pretty much impossible by road. This year, we were caught out thinking we had all we needed and honestly not expecting to be flooded in. We managed to get 120 mil of rain in one week on the station and rain all around the region. Now this was a great saving grace for many stations around, giving all the stations, including us, some much needed green pick that has made a big difference. We weren't too worried once the road dried up. If it, the rain is just around the station, we should be able to get to town before too long. Well, that was before we got a phone call that the Georgina River had gone up and was still rising. Even after the rain, the river kept rising for a couple of weeks. We got to about a week and Dusty was getting worried, ringing the local pub 70 k's up the road towards town to find out if he could get past the river, which was up by 2.5 metres high and flowing strongly. No way you can get through. You'll have to sit tight and wait it out. Well, easy to say, wait it out. Try living with a smoker on his last dregs of tobacco and I was a bit overhearing every now and then how he'd better get some smokes soon. I was thinking of ways I could get some smokes, but there was no way. I sent messages to friends down the highway in the other direction towards Alice Springs, only to get no, you can't get through this way. So I called stations heading towards Boulia, but no avail. The river was up there end too. Once the water around the station dried up a little, Dusty thought he'd go for a short drive to see how far he could get. Well, at least that's where I thought he was going. I perhaps may have been a little bit suspicious if I'd realised he'd packed a backpack, a garbage bags, and however, I'd never noticed this. But clearly he had a plan in his head. This boy was on a mission. 
a mission to get his smokes. While Dusty was out and about, gone for some time, I must say I got a phone call from our neighbours. I'm about to fly in with the chopper. I hear you're in need of smokes out there. Do you want me to pick some up for you? Excited I was. Yes, that would be great. I said, thinking how proud Dusty would be getting home to me holding him a carton of smokes. While Dusty was still out, I was pretty surprised how long he'd been, thinking, wow, he must be getting around the whole mill run. Our neighbour arrived to drop off the smokes. In passing conversation, I mentioned that he should be back by now. He mentioned there was a ute parked up at the river when he flew over. I'm like, nah, couldn't be him. He knows he can't get past the river. Anyhow, as the chopper left, I waited for Dusty's arrival eagerly to see his reaction when I handed him the smokes he had been craving for the last three weeks. The river at this point was still about 2.5 metres and flowing strongly, not to mention the two water crossings before the river and the other two after the river, so that's five deep flowing water crossings to get to before he could even get to the pub, which was the nearest place he could get smokes. There was no way he was going to get smokes any other way in the next two weeks or so. Finally, I hear the dogs barking, Dusty's home. I race outside with a grin on my face, showing a sense of accomplishment to see him with an equally as pleased with himself grin on his face and a backpack in his hand. You were gone a while, I said. How far did you get? He hands the backpack to me. What's that, I ask, to which Dusty's response was, take a look, I got me smokes. My face just drops. You what? I just bought you a carton of smokes. It was brought out in next door's chopper. I opened the backpack to find smokes, beer, coke, chocolate, lollies, and some spare powdered milk for the girls just in case we needed it. Clearly he'd put thought into this and brought something for everyone. Smokes and beer for him, coke and chocolate for me, my weak spot, and lollies for the girls. But how on earth did you get to the pub? To which his response was as if the answer was obvious. I swam. Across all five crossings, I asked. Yep. Then walked to the pub, put everything in the garbage bags, tied them up, put them in the backpack, and swam back with the backpack on my back with all the stuff, with a cheeky smile. Next time I see him leave the house with a backpack and garbage bags, must note that he has to be up to something. After we chose to start off the episode with Jody sharing a story about Dusty being a little bit silly, I asked Dusty if he had any yarns about Jody to even out the playing field. Actually, I believe my words were, nah, it's okay, throw her under the bus. Go on. Well, this is what he had to say. No, she, because we had two, there was two properties at Turley, so you had Turley and... Chinderwood. Chinderwood. And she had to go from one to the other and took, well, went the right way. Then turned around and went Turned the around, way. went back we'll thinking you'd gone way. the wrong way, which then you were going the wrong way, to decide, no, I should have been there by now to turn, turn around, around and start back. coming back. And all you hear on the radio is, um, I'm out of fuel. And how can you be out of fuel? Like, where are you? Well, I don't know. Which way did you go? Well, I came out of Chinderwood and I turned right. Okay, so you're heading towards Turley. But then I thought I was going the wrong way, so I turned around and went the other way. Right, so you're heading towards the National Park. She goes, oh, no, but then I thought I was going the wrong way, so I've turned around and come back. And so whereabouts are you? I don't know. Okay, we'll find you. And you're out of fuel. We only fueled you up this morning. Like, you've got to have a full tank of fuel. You can't have gone through a tank of fuel in the ute that quickly. And went out looking for her and... Just as I'm about to come around the corner, she goes, you hear this over the radio? 
If I was out of fuel, would the engine still be running? (laughs) (laughs) And it was literally a chorus line over the radio of everyone, no, 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 no. (laughs) Come up over the hill and... She's literally in the middle of the road on I a blind the hill. By this point, I'd go and come and tell me, "You go. Oh, I think I know what's wrong with the car when it's sitting on an angle like this." And <laughs> she's on three wheels going up a hill and actually managed to skull drag the Ute about or oh, half a k on three wheels, thinking she's ran out of fuel. I had been like, "There's just 500 <laughs> meters <laughs> of, the, of the skull car. drag. Brakes oh, are gone. Wheels off in the bush, and it's just." A drag line so for half a K. A <laughs> that is the greatest thing. Oh my god! We yes. got up the hill, but that was it. <laughs> you didn't even not make quite, it up the hill. Not quite up the hill. <laughs> Come flying over the top of the hill, and here's his car in the middle. Oh, fuck! <laughs> but anyway, just one well, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm leaving this in. By the way, this is. <laughs> 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 Hope you're okay with that. <laughs> I like. <laughs> There's like literally it? thousands of stories if you really thought about Oh my one. god. <laughs> Stop thinking about it because we'll get to that eventually. <laughs> I guess like we probably should start off for, so people have had the introduction to, well, we've had a dusty introduction with swimming to the pub. We've had a Jody introduction with running out of fuel. Um, for a more formal introduction, Dusty, who are you and where are you from? Um, well, I'm, I'm from the Territory. I grew up on a station up here and, um, Whereabouts? around the Catherine area. Um, really? I didn't know that. I thought you were in Queensland for some reason. No, no. Queensland's big hats and no brains. Um, <laughs> you can't edit that one out. Or I, I didn't say that. Um, <laughs> um no, Territory. And then, yeah, moved all over the place. My uncle owned a lease on a place. My parents uh, moved to Melbourne when I was younger. I stayed with my uncle. Um, And then when I left there to do an apprenticeship, it was sort of the usual thing. You either went to work for somebody else or you got a trade under your belt and left the family place. And... um, by the time I'd done my apprenticeship and started working elsewhere, my uncle got rid of the... I'd finished his lease on the place and moved into Darwin and opened up a golf course. Oh, wow. That's a bit different. Okay. <laughs> hell, hell of a change of scenery. Yeah. And so what did you do your apprenticeship in? A uh, mechanic. That's um, very handy. Fixing cars, I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> got some real issues with my motor car. <laughs> I learned so much about people in these podcasts. I'm like, I didn't know you could do that. Hey, friend. <laughs> um, what about you, Jodie? Um, I grew up in Melbourne, uh, not far out of Melbourne CBD. Uh, had a very city upbringing, I guess, but I always had this idea in my head that one day I was going to live on a big farm. Um, to me, I think big farm might have been t- maybe 20 acres. <laughs> um, so I got a bit beyond that. But, yeah, um, just Melbourne. I was into horses. I've always ridden horses, on, had kept horses on the outskirts of Melbourne gone to riding schools and stuff like that so um, I was a horsey girl but not no country background no yeah. and so after you did your apprenticeship Dusty before you met Jodie were you out working on stations did you go back to station life yeah yeah I, 
Uh, worked well south of Catherine, around Larimer area for a while. Then from Larimer went to a couple of stations around Alice Springs. Uh, from there went to New South Wales, out near or in between sort of Dubbo and Tamworth. Um, which then from there I ended up moving down to Melbourne to drive trucks. Yeah, I was just about to ask, being up on, you know, working on stations, how did you meet this Melbourne girl? Uh, I moved down to Melbourne, my ex-wife moved my kids down to Melbourne. So I left the station to be closer to the kids. When moved down there, started driving trucks and then met Jodie at a pub. <laughs> So, Jodie, what did you think when you met Dusty? Um, He's a pretty territory kind of person. To be honest, I think I noticed his car first in a pretty yuppie car park in Melbourne. Um, So he had a dinged-up Navara covered in B&S stickers and um, big horns on the bonnet. Yeah. Um, So I sort of looked at the car, and bearing in mind, I said I'd always wanted to be a country girl. I kind of treated my... Yeah, um, got my interest, and when I went in there, he was pretty easy to spot, the one with the cowboy hat and sleeveless shirt in the pub, um, and it just kind of went from there. And then um, how long was it after that that you guys ended up going out to work on a property together? Uh, mm. We met in the Let's... November, and we moved out in April, I think it was. Um I was going to say about six it months, was but about yeah. about the same time Keeping Up With The Joneses was on TV and I was watching that. <laughs> so as soon as he gave me this idea of um, going out to a station, I was like, oh, yeah, let's give it a go. Well, he basically <laughs> gave me an ultimatum, give up trucks or give up you. And I said, all I know is stations and driving. And he said, I always wanted to move out to a station. So that's sort of how that started. It wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I was like, let's give it a crack. <laughs> And so what was, where did you go to first? Uh, to New South Wales. Yeah, what part? Uh, south, just over, the, just over the border from Victoria, uh, out near Mungo National Park. And, and what, what was the job out there? What was it like? Um, I was, the, well, I was originally started as the cleaner, so that had a tourism um, part to the station. And I was the cleaner and Dusty was the head stockman. And then I, their govy that they had planned had fallen through. Um, so I had gone from their, their cleaner to their, to their governess um, while we were out there. At the same time, we also uh, fell pregnant with Jazz. Um, so, yeah, we left there about the time Jazz was due to be born. And is that when you came over to WA where I met you? Yes, just after Jazz was born. So... Yeah. So we went back to Melbourne first to have Jazz, and then two weeks after Jazz was born, we moved to Western Australia. Okay. And so how big was the place in New South that you were working on? Well, only about, it was about 60,000 acres, 70,000 acres. Yeah. It's quite small. So you went from 60,000 acres to the, technically I guess it's like the northern gold field. It's like pretty smack bang in the middle of WA out to Luna. Um, to Carnegie Station, which is a million acres. So that was a pretty big jump. What was and, and also a lot more remote. 
you know, the nearest town, Woluna, was, is it three hours to Woluna? Yeah, three and a half, four hours, yeah. yeah. And Woluna what, has, like, a servo at a really tiny IGA. Is there a pub there? Yeah. I can't say I ever actually ever stopped. Like, I, would, I would, like, fill up in Meek Farah and then just keep driving until I got to the station. I never pulled up in Woluna. <laughs> No, the pub, it has it has a pub there, but it's uh, it's it's kind of kind of the it's the type of pub that you don't think exists anymore. Yeah. Like you've got your front bar, which was for all your local indigenous, and then you had the back bar, which was for your white fellas, and your locals were allowed in the back bar until they'd got a few under the belt and then they're out the door and they had to be around in the front bar again yeah. and they open the gate for you and when you drive in they lock the gate and lock you in it's a bit scary oh wow no it's not scary it's, it was actually a really nice pub <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that's a bit yeah interesting i've never you never heard of anyone getting locked in a pub no so when <laughs> i i when we moved dusty threw out like eight garbage bags of clothes that i had and I insisted that I had to keep some nice clothes to go to Walina. So I thought every night so often. I said, I know we're a long way from there, but once a month we could go to the pub and go out for dinner and do something nice. And with a very cheeky grin on his face, he's like, right, we'll do that. So we went to the pub first time we pulled into Walina and I got dressed up, as I thought that I, we could do every so often. And we drive up and they open the gates and then we drive in and they lock the gates. And I was like, why are they locking us in here? And then we pull up and Dusty comes and grabs Jazz off me. And I was like, I can hold her. And he's like, no, I'll hold her. And then within minutes, we had people surrounding us trying to hold the baby and looking at the baby. And then the pub owner comes and says, would you like to go down the back where it's a bit quieter? And I was like, that'd be nice. And so as we're walking down the hallway, there's people on the outside banging on the walls trying to get in as we walk through it was something i've never seen before yeah i didn't even know yeah that was my first memory of waluna <laughs> yeah i'd been there before so i sort of knew what it was like <laughs> yeah yeah it's definitely a bit different that's for sure needless to say we didn't go out there once a month no. <laughs> and so what was it like coming out to carnegie especially for you jody like i know Going from the place in New South would have been, um, it was a lot smaller and a lot closer to town. Carnegie is a lot bigger and a lot further away from town. And a lot, it's just very remote. Um, I definitely remember on the drive, it was a very long drive with a lot of thinking time um, from Melbourne across. Um, as we started driving out from Kalgoorlie, so the nearest, I guess you'd say, service town with services for us, um, within about three hours or four hours into that drive I, I started crying at first um it's a bit overwhelmed with the hours and hours of nothing um to be honest um but I was excited for an adventure and something completely different um and when I got there I was a bit more um excited about learning a new way of life I guess um it certainly had its challenges we had a brand new baby as well so and then we just moved to a property without 24-hour power. Um, in, we moved in summer. It was near 50 degrees. We had, obviously, without power, we had no air conditioning. Um, so I had to use icebox and things to cool down baths for the baby and stuff like that. Um, everybody thinks that would have been... They said, how 
did you manage that with your first baby? And I'm like, it's, I think it was easier because I didn't know what it was like to raise a baby in a town. The first time I had a baby, it was out there and it was remote. And that's what I was, I got used to very quickly. I was just about to ask that because I feel like it would be a huge adjustment to move out to a station, especially one as remote as Carnegie. And it would be a huge adjustment to have a baby, but to do both at the same time is pretty wild. Yeah. I, I, as I said, I think it was easier because I never raised a baby in a town, so I didn't know what it was like to have services around you. Um, later on, I went to have Hunter on in a town and... I'd rather have baby remotely any day than yeah. have a baby in, in the middle of the town. Yeah. Um, you left to, you know, she went in for her vaccinations and things like that. But other than that, um, she had the best life. And it was fun being a mum. You had time. Even though we were busy, we still had time to just do nothing and hang with, with her and not have to drive here and drive there and and be different, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um yeah, I loved, I loved raising her at Carnegie, it was the best. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. And Darcy, can you tell us a bit about Carnegie and what it was like as a cattle station and what it was like for you guys out there? Uh, well, I, I actually rather enjoyed it over there. It was a lot more remote than than a lot of the stations that I suppose I've been on with Jody. So it was probably more of an eye-opener for her. Um, still got, with the tourist side out there, there was still a bit of a, I suppose, social aspect for you. You still had people coming through where... You'd actually get to see different faces. Um, what was the highway that Carnegie was on? Gun Barrel. Gun Barrel, that's right. So Carnegie is the last stop on the Gun Barrel Highway to get fuel if people are driving basically from... To Warburton yeah. or from Warburton going across to Waluna, so... Yeah, which is that, that Great Central Road, is it? That so the Great Central... Yeah, uh, yeah, so the Great Central runs parallel with the Gun Barrel, so... The Great Central's more of your mining type road for the yeah. mines out there, whereas the Gun Barrel's the the original Len Bedell road that um, he cut for all the uh, military stuff that was going on okay. back so in the seventies, I think it was. A lot of people come through with caravans and four wheel drives trying to get across to Alice, going through the, the outback way. Uh, yeah, yeah, they try. They <laughs> they they try with a lot of camper vans and caravans and. Most of them tend to fail. <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty rough trap. Yeah, what they reckon it was one of the worst in Australia. I reckon it was great, <laughs> but set the bar low. Have low expectations. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah, that was pretty cool. So you'd have people come through and they could camp at Carnegie. Could they camp at Carnegie? Yes. Yeah, and then so you got that social aspect, which is pretty cool. Because if you've been at one of the neighbouring stations, which is just as remote, just as far from town, but they don't have that tourist aspect. Yeah. Then you kind of rely on those same five people year round so we had the campgrounds and donger accommodation i think we expanded a bit of the tourist site and we used to offer so we would cook if they wanted meals um but we would also offer they could either have it at the tourist center or they could eat it with us and the station staff so 90 percent of people would choose to come and eat with us because then they get a bit more of an authentic um 
experience and get to talk to people that live out yeah. there because there was always questions about how do you live so far from town and how do you get your mail and all sorts of different questions that people wanted to ask and we had a communal fire pit um and each night once we put jazz to bed we'd go over there and and have a chat so it was nice the the tourist during tourist season it was really busy and nice yeah i like yeah. that and what about dusty the cattle station itself and the cattle side of things can you run me through that and just so people listening have a bit of context uh well cattle sides for the size of the place, I suppose, being being in a very desert-type area, you, although you're a very large property, you run a, a lot less head per acre. You've got to be conservative because it's such marginal country. Yeah. Um, unlike the Territory, I suppose, we, we ran one round of muster in a year over there, whereas here we run at least two depending on the season, even throw a third round in every so often. Um, the type of cattle you ran were always, well, were very different over there. Um, you know, here we're running, you know, straight Brahmin breed. Over there it was a, a shorthorn Red Angus cross, so they, they had a completely different market. Um, they could send all their cattle down south to the backgrounding property, couldn't they? Yeah. And then from there, I believe my, all of theirs went to the Middle East, whereas here it's looking more for for an Indonesian-type market, more of an Asian Asian market for a top end up here. And what about, you know, also I thought Carnegie was pretty different because you have a crew just for that round of muster. You don't have a crew all year round, do you? No, so we had, what did we have? We had uh, was sort of one, one, sometimes two station hands, um, plus a... Uh, 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 we had a backpacker working full time with Jody around the homestead area, um, dealing with the tourists and the campgrounds and everything. Um, whereas here, on yeah, well over there you'd have your your backpackers. We well mostly backpackers that came through for the mustering. Whereas here, different again. I mean, we bring contractors in. Um, whereas I've just got one one station hand full time on, and yeah, contractors basically take care of the rest for us. How did Carnegie compare after Carnegie? You guys moved to a station on the NT Queensland border. Was it how what whereabouts on the border was it? Was it, it was closer to Alice, wasn't it? Yeah, oh, closer to Mount Isa than Alice Springs. Yeah, so kind of halfway. So is that on the Barclay then? No, on Plenty Highway. Okay. So, yeah, Plenty Highway is right, well, part of the station actually crossed over the border into Queensland. I suppose Mount Isa was, what, about four and a half hours for us? Yeah, about four or so hours. Whereas Alice Springs was closer to eight, nine hours. Okay, and so that was Manners Creek. What what kind of station was that? How big, how many cattle, what was, how did it compare? It was just, just under two million acres. Um... So it was de- decent size. Again, running mostly Brahmin cattle, but um, with with very, I suppose, little rainfall out there the time we were there. Um, Gigi poison was a very big issue out that way, so we, we only ran, well, we had probably about six and a half, seven thousand head, I think, throughout the whole station. Um, 
they did better after well, after we had actually left out there. They ended up getting some really good good rain, um, which then they ended up selling to a Queensland mob. Um, was that compared to Carnegie? Was that a one round muster kind of? Because um, Carnegie, I suppose, is more of a harvest operation. Like you kind of come in for those six to eight weeks and grab the cattle and do that that short one round. Whereas, you know, then you've got other stations that kind of it's like an ongoing thing throughout the year. Um, was Manners Creek kind of a, a, a more of a harvest or was it...? It was probably more of a harvest. There was just one round of mustering that they'd run there as well. Um, but it wasn't, I suppose, similar to Carnegie. It was uh, uh, bringing what they could. Um, in terms of like staff or, or bring oh, cattle, cattle what yeah. they could cattle wise staff they had they, they had another property um, it was out Long Reach Way or something Julia Creek Julia Creek um, where all the cattle off manors would go out to Julia Creek to finish them off before sale yeah um, whereas like Carnegie would send it all south to another finishing block and then sell from there um I mean, completely different country, but it was actually ran very similar. Um, their staff that they got in, they wasn't backpackers. They had um, staff out at the Julia Creek property, so they'd just bring yeah. all their staff from there across, and then they brought in a couple of contractors, two or three two or three people, um, to come in just to lend a hand. But, yeah, other than that, it was all staff that ran it, just staff from a different property. <laughs> So between Carnegie and Manus Creek, and now you're on Florina. So it's Florina's probably incre- that's an increase in the intensity of management because you do two rounds and you um, you don't run a full crew though. Like you just you have the one station hand, and but you use contractors. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So I find I think it's just interesting to talk about that because a lot of people when they think cattle stations, they think full crew of you know like ten ringers, all these horses, you know, two rounds, just kind of going, but. There are so many different types of cattle stations and different setups and, and structures, and you guys have kind of gone to the more extensive side where you run a smaller crew. Is that is that been a choice? Like, would you ever want to run, you know, one of these company places where you've got like you know, 20, 17 year olds kind of hanging around, or, or do, you, do you kind of like the small? small I, shows? I kind of prefer the smaller side myself. It's it's less people to have to deal with and. I mean, look, the, the thing is, I, f- I find you get a lot of people that want to come out and think they're going to be the next man from Snowy River, and then they find out it isn't what they expect, and they, they become very hard to deal with because, you know, they've seen every episode of McLeod's Daughters or something, and this is what it's going to be like. And, well, no, it's not. <laughs> and you get a smaller operation, work with less people and less crew, and... Things I find tend to run a lot smoother. You, you you've got more control over over how an operation works. You don't have a a crew of new people out camped out somewhere in a paddock that they should be doing what what you've asked them to do. But then they're like, no, I know better, so they do their own thing. An operation like here, I mean, we run. We run, you know, a crew of like, what are we getting, five five contractors, plus myself and the station hand here. So out of, what, seven people, um, 
working with the cattle everything runs smoothly it's everyone's on the same page you don't have people working against each other it just flows <laughs> yeah i guess it's horses for courses like for some people that will work other people i know i definitely would struggle and have struggled on like the really small not small places in terms of property or cattle sizes but small crews like i just need a few extra people around me but then obviously on the flip side of that when you have a lot of people in some places then you can have a lot of drama so it's kind of I guess it really depends on the place and the people and the dynamic. And I think we struggled when we were trying to find a governess. Um, a lot of people wanted a crew. Yeah. That, would, that would be their first question. Um, but then some other people actually like it's kind of more like a big family here and they come yeah. on as part of our family as opposed to... And because we're not that far from town where we are now, they can still get social, the yeah. social side as well. Um, but there definitely is some people seeking a station with a crew because that's what a real cattle station is like in their, in their mind. mind. Yeah, yeah. This notion of what makes a, a real station, what the real experience is. Yeah. Where they're just, they're, I guess they're like people. They're all different shapes and sizes and different yeah. experiences. Like it's, yeah. there's uh, no right way to be or no correct cattle station. I feel small, smaller station might be better for people that are just moving out to cattle stations but are a bit nervous about about starting and they've got that more family environment they yeah. feel that they're moving into a, a family but then if you don't get along with a smaller amount of people it can be Difficult. a little yeah. bit awkward yeah. so you guys have been around <laughs> i love that we've got all the authentic sounds in the second <laughs> we've got dusty lighting a smoke and the flies <laughs> smokers cough love it Stop make me laugh <laughs> Um, you've been around and you've, you've, in the last decade, seen a lot of different country and worked with different people, and you've had quite a few adventures, which you've written about in some of your blogs, and I know there's some more coming up. Um, so we've already heard the adventure about swimming to the pub, but I would love to hear some more classic Jody and Dusty yarns. Oh, that's a bird. I thought that was you whistling just then. <laughs> I was like, why are you whistling in our episode? <laughs> Definitely not me. <laughs> oh, this is good. Okay. Um, realities of recording on a cattle station. So, yeah, tell us some yarns. Okay, I guess we're trying to think. Thinking back to Carnegie, we had, um, be, having grown up in the city, I hadn't experienced things like you do one station, so you've got fires and floods and all sorts of range of things. And I've always been a bit funny about fire, so when we were at Carnegie and we had fires around, I was quite quite nervous and didn't have this understand couldn't work out why like in a city you have a fire you call a fire brigade they put the fire out and it's all done whereas out there you know you control it you watch it you monitor it you don't necessarily put it out and it's gone so we had fires burning and we so FISA and and us and everybody was watching it and monitoring it but it was pretty much it was wasn't on our land it was in the middle of nowhere Um, but you could see it really well from, from the station of a night time, you could just see red everywhere. I was petrified. I thought I was going to die. Um, so I'd organised for Dusty to... I told Dusty that he had to sit on the roof of a night time with binoculars while I slept. Um, and I thought this was going to keep me safe because if the fire got close, he could then come and wake me up and save me. Um, so he did he went up there and I'd go to sleep and then I'd wake up and I'd find Dusty lying next to me so I'd wake him up again and I'd send him back up to the roof 
and this went on quite a few times during the night until he eventually stayed stayed up there which I later found out he took a swag and went to sleep up there but in the morning the roo shooter that was camping on our property he come up to me and he was like oh, I've had the strangest dream last night Jody." and I was like oh he said I dreamt that Dusty was on the roof with binoculars all night and I'm like yeah he was I sent him up there <laughs> um so yeah it was my my lovely husband keeping me safe and sitting on the roof I thought but he was actually just going to sleep on the roof in the end. <laughs> Thankfully, Fisa actually came to the rescue and told you to abandon the station, just leave me out there. Yeah, they evacuated me. made my me. life very, very... Oh, really? very oh, I, yeah. I rang them up in they a said, bit of someone a panic. Static, someone hysterical and that is better off not being in the way. It'll make things run smoother and easier, so... That is so funny. <laughs> evacuated funny. the backpackers, evacuated Jody, and we got to stay there and just... Enjoy some peace and quiet. Oh my god, that is actually the greatest thing. <laughs> what other adventures have you guys had? Were there any more on Carnegie? I guess I guess living out so remotely, you get some strange people that cross your path. Sometimes I find that the people that live really remotely, some of that like you've got some normal people, and then you've got some not so normal people, and you tend to come across some characters, like and some strange things that yeah. Well, we used, we used to get a lot of interesting tourists come through. I mean, some of which we're actually really good friends with now. I mean, Phil, I, mean, I just spent three weeks on holiday with a bloke that we met as a tourist. He was only going to stay at Carnegie for one night. They stayed a week. And Elle, who's best man at our wedding, um, just became really good mates. That's so um, they had a, they His secretary had called up, so we were at Carnegie. And we have a campgrounds and we have dongers and we have a donkey that feeds the tourist water. Um, so it's it's definitely not your first class accommodation. And uh, Phil's secretary rang up and she said that they wanted um, their, our finest room, French champagne on arrival and a spa bar. <laughs> and bath. a bubble bath, was it? And I was like, right. I went out to Dusty in the backpackers and I was like, we have people that want our finest room and separate rooms for them and their child and French champagne and a bubble bath on arrival. I'm like, we've got a donger. We've got a shower heated by a donkey and we've got a soda stream machine. <laughs> Classic. You can't, you can't put cheap wine in a soda stream machine. It doesn't work. Oh, we did try. So, yeah, we worked with what we had and then they turned up. We saw this car pull up. And they stopped at the gate and we were expecting it to be them and we're at the workshop and they stopped there for ages and we're watching them going, gosh, what are these Standing out trying to flag them in going, yeah, you're at the right place. <laughs> and um, eventually they drove through and apparently they were uh, listening to the Len Bedell, uh, CD oh. and it was just as Len Bedell entered Carnegie Station and they didn't want to drive through the gates until, until Len did. did. They wanted to do it at the same time. Um, and these people that we were expecting to be these really upper-class type people were really down to earth. And as Dusty said, they ended up staying a week swimming in the dams with us. They had a son about the same age as Dusty's eldest son who was staying with us at the time. Um, yeah, and they had a great time. They've been best mates ever since. That's so cool. That's really cool. You, you do. You get to meet some amazing people that you just... When would you cross paths with them otherwise? Like. Yeah. I guess that's one of the advantages of having that tourist 
facet to Carnegie. Yeah. Um, what about the Rue Shooter story? Okay, so we had um, the Rue Shooter employed an offsider to help him out, and they, his offsider changed sometimes, and he had a new offsider. I was at home with Jazz, who was still quite young, Dusty, and, and the Rue Shooter had left for the day, and I wasn't sure why he'd left the Rue Shooter, um, his offsider behind, but he had. And I got, I was doing something and all of a sudden heard banging on our windows and kind of walked over to the window to see him madly banging at the window and the door, trying to get in when unbeknownst to him, he could have just opened the door because we didn't lock our doors. Um, and as I tried to ignore him and told him he had to go back to camp, he said that I needed to take him into town. Um, he was clearly intoxicated and saying that he needed to go to town. He had drank all the Rooshooter's rum and that he'd kill him and blah, blah, blah. Just kept going on and on. So I tried to ignore him and kept walking around the house and he kept doing circles around the house. Eventually he he left me alone like I told him to and he went back to the to their camp. And then I saw our Rooshooter come arrive back and he headed towards the camp. And as he's coming, as he's got out of the car, the offsiders got an iron bar, 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 bar and he's running at him with the iron bar and as like he's going to hit him and then he just falls flat on his face um, obviously because he'd had too much to drink so the rooster grabbed him and put him in the car and he's pulled up beside the house and I've come out and he's like I'm dropping him into town I just got a call on the sat phone I was waiting on a police check for this fella and apparently he'd been in prison just recently for murder and they were looking for him and they wanted him back. Um, so they obviously got him, got him away. Um, so it's like, I'll just drop him back into town and I'll be back soon. Um, but yeah, you definitely see some... You're just like, yeah, radio, <laughs> off you go. Safe drive, can you bring back some milk? Yeah. Like, as yeah. you were. <laughs> yeah, it was um, a bit different. I was like, this guy was just trying to get in like he was quite angrily trying to get into the house at yeah. some point um obviously too drunk to realize that he could just open the door and walk in <laughs> and you are um, you are quite a ways away out from cops out there and you got a call one time didn't you dusty from the cops asking you to lo- lend a hand yeah they'd... well i guess two, two times we'll, the Carnegie, <laughs> we'll go the Carnegie one first then we'll go the, the territory one yeah no, they just um oh, they were after I don't even know who they were, but they had a description of a vehicle and a description of a person. And being so far from, uh, I suppose, the nearest town, um, they'd rang us and said there's only so many directions they can head. If we were to see them coming our way, could we detain them and just let them know because they couldn't spare an officer to drive four and a half hours out to us by the off chance that someone was to show up in our direction. Um, did you know what these people were wanted for? Uh, they, they, they did tell us at the time, but I, I don't remember now, but it was, wasn't anything, I think, too major. Okay. Um, but, yeah, it was just very unusual to get a phone call from, from the cops saying, oh, look, if someone happens to show up out there, this is the car they're driving, this is the registration, this is what they look like, can you just detain them for us? Um, not to, like, too sure exactly where I'm going to detain them or 
whether or not this is actually quite legal. But <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, what are you just going to do? Zip tie them and chuck them in the calf cage? Like, <laughs> one of the dog cages? Like stranger things have happened. <laughs> um, and then, and so there was another time where you um, that involved the cops and a ride at the pub in the territory. It was Easter, yep. I believe. Easter Saturday. Easter Saturday, we'd we'd actually gone up to the local pub for they have uh, like a bit of a celebration number of times during the year, whether it be cricket day, Christmas, Easter. Um, they even run a meet your neighbours day, so you could all the local stations would all sort of come together and a bit of a social event, so everyone could catch up and you know meet all the new people that have just moved into the area or say goodbye to the ones that are moving on for to the next property and we'd been up there and we'd we'd got back it must have been close to about midnight i think we got back to the station to i believe i'd just passed out and the phone was ringing and you woke me up to answer the phone and i um I think I said, no, it's, you must be imagining that it was too late at night for anyone to be ringing, but it kept ringing after it stopped ringing and ringing again. And Jody finally answered the phone, and uh, I believe it was the cops the first time yeah, and- telling us to, to there was a riot going on at the pub that we'd just left. And, well... You know what they told you better than I will. <laughs> um, to head out there and make sure he had a gun with him. And I was like, right, okay. So I woke Dusty up and he jumped out of bed. I said, you need to go to the pub now, take your gun. He jumped out of bed and he grabbed his gun out of the safe and he said, right, I'm ready. And I'm like, no, you need to get dressed first. <laughs> so he's like, okay, so he's, he's got dressed. Um, you got sobered up quicker than I ever had before and from that. <laughs> drove. So Pam called me as soon as he was inside the pub, and I think from him leaving home to getting there and inside with everybody <laughs> 23 was twenty-three minutes. minutes. Um, <laughs> he drove seventy k's um, down a dirt dirt road in the dark. Um, yeah, but I, I wasn't. I, they they didn't tell us that they had told other stations the same thing. So I, I got as far as the Georgina River and pulled up, thinking, you know, I've just got a phone call. If there's a right going on, what am I going to do? It's one person against Christ knows how many. So I thought, oh, all you can do is go in, making a great deal of noise. So I've just V8 cruiser you just stepped on it. Flying over the bridge, horn going, lights flashing, going. Oh, whoever's going to see it's going to, you know, pack themselves and hopefully get out of the way. Pulled up on the straight, heading towards the pub, and there's a car going straight towards me. And I'm going, oh, who the hell's this? And going, no, well, it can't be the people that they're concerned about. They've got headlights and everything as well. So hit the hit the anchors and pulled up and. Um, it's actually the guys from Headingley Station. They got the same phone call and they come in. What's going on? I don't know. You guys tell me. I didn't know you guys were here. And they're going, well, we just got here. They're going, how long have you been here? So I just got here. And when did they ring you? Looked at the time. Going, Not quite half an hour ago. So, but they rang us at the same time. How'd you get here so quick? Oh, 
I didn't muck around. And anyway, I got to the pub and um, the guys at the pub had actually barricaded themselves in, um, pulled up outside and um, yelled out to them, was a bit concerned about just banging on the door in case they'd armed themselves in there as well. Yelled out to them, they came out and... Um, I'd sort of been, it was well under control by that point, but they came out within, I think it was about three hours later, the cops actually managed to show up, and it was quite, quite a, quite an eye-opener for me, it was the cutest little, I suppose, female copper I've ever seen, four foot nothing, very petite blonde thing, climbed out of this, this divvy van, and comes walking up going nice cute innocent voice uh, so what's the problem um oh, where are they and right behind her is two of the biggest coppers i've ever seen in my life and she goes all right turns around and this voice goes from nice cute little innocent thing to right you two over there get them we're going right it's like sticking your dogs onto someone so you know the three of them walked off to the vacant block just down the road a bit and you know, pitch black, oh, it must have been about 2, 3 o'clock in, or 3, 4 o'clock in the morning I suppose by this point and all you could hear is this, get on the ground now, don't, don't even move and it's, it's this cute little innocent female's voice just turned into like a pit bull getting hold of someone <laughs> and they come back, started throwing them in tight, you know, well they couldn't leave them in the, in the wagon um, while they're trying to round them all up. So they actually um, padlocked them in the tyre cage. Yeah. Um, all the guys, that, as they were grabbing each one, none of them local. They are all sort of blow-ins from other places. Um, and, yeah, just to see two big coppers under the direction of a, a barking pit bull <laughs> grabbing guys and just throwing them into a lock-up tyre cage was uh, something very different. <laughs> Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end ag industry while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. Guys have certainly seen a lot of different things on stations. In amongst... This, you know, moving out to stations, running stations, moving around the country a bit, and for you it's all just been brand new Jody. In amongst all of that, you guys have also been raising a family. And and for most of the, you know, the first few places you're at were pretty isolated, um, and now you're not that far from town. So just I know you've written some stories before sharing your thoughts on what it's like to raise kids in isolation. Um, if you can tell me a bit about that. And then we'll, we'll go into what it's like now being a bit closer to town. Yep. Um, look, as I briefly touched on earlier, um, I had Jasmine, she was just a brand new baby down at, at Carnegie. Um, 
and I really, really enjoyed it and the time, the quality of time, I think, that I got to spend with her down there. Um, the temperatures, there was, there was certainly challenges there, which the temperature was one because we didn't have 24-hour power and the, the heat in summer was quite extreme. Um, even the cold in winter was in minus at times as well, so trying to monitor that. Um, as I said, we've used, we've gone to like using like ice blocks and things to cool down baths to try and cool her down because she kept getting this, this, this heat rash all over her. In winter, trying to keep her warm because we couldn't heat the room. Um, is we just learnt to you know layer clothes on and those kids sleeping bags and things that you can have and beanies and stuff so that she she obviously stayed warm enough um what about socialization and you know especially when she was the only child for I, a think, while. I think you make um you make an effort we know and i think all, all families all station and remote families know that that's i guess lacking a little bit in the kids lives um, we, we always made an effort, so we used to drive to the boundary of Carnegie to meet a neighbour that had another child around Jazz's age at that time, and we'd meet on the boundary fence and take sausages and a glass of wine and um, just climb through the fence to each other and stuff, save having to drive the two, 300 k's around. Yeah. Um, we'd drive, I think it was 100 k's, and I could check balls along the way and, and the other lady she checked their balls along the way and that's so funny because i know of a lady or a couple of ladies in down on the barclay tablelands who do the same thing and they meet up for wine and yeah. their kids all just play or they'll do the kid drop off at the boundary yeah yeah it's brilliant and it's the exact um like jazz was only little then even to the point we used to do it just so we could lay the babies down side by side you know yeah and watch the babies giggle and go and and have a wine um then when we moved to the plenty highway they had what was called the plant, or well, they still have what's called the Plenty Playgroup, and um, a different station hosts. Um, but we were a fair way away; that was further down. We were one end of the Plenty Highway, and most of the stations that, that participated were further down the highway. Um, so we would drive up to five, six hundred k's to attend the Plenty Playgroup events. Um, it's just how it's what you make of it, and you really need to make the effort for the kids. Um, so that they can see other people. Yeah. Um, was also Jazz and Willow were quite close together, and that was partly influenced by the fact that we had Jazz on the station on her own. Um, so we had the kids close together for that reason, so that they would have another another child to play with. And what's your experience been like with education? Because all your kids have gone through school of the air, except for the there was a period of time where you guys. Well, I suppose, what was it like going from school to the air and then you guys came back into town for a bit in Alice? Um, I, I actually, to be honest, and um, teachers out there might cringe, I, I really dread the day that my kids would ever have to go back to town school. Yeah. Um, I had, so Jazz done preschool and all of transition and half of year one in town. And Willow done one year of preschool and she done a second year of preschool so she done half a year of preschool a year and a half of preschool in town when jazz started so halfway through year one at school of the year she was at a finishing preschool level she had not picked up anything in town um the teachers had 
kept saying it was something with jazz, which I don't. I, I got well, we got hearing tested. We got um, we took it to pediatricians. We got eyesight tested. We got everything they wanted tested, and everything come back fine. But they kept saying it had to be jazz. She just wasn't learning anything. Within two terms at school of the year, she had gone up a year, a whole year within two terms. Um, I'm not saying that that town school isn't for um, isn't good. Like it's it's perfect for some kids and it works well for some kids. But I think some kids certainly need more one-on-one attention, which you get through school of the year because they've got a governess that's sitting there in the classroom with them. You've got you know, anywhere from one to maybe four students, occasionally more, but on the bigger stations. But um, they've got the attention there, the attention from the teachers. They have their Skype sessions and things which are one-on-one with their teachers. Um, and the class sizes as a whole is smaller than what you would get in town. Um, and I just think that's really, really beneficial for the kids. There's a lot of work. There's certainly improvement needed in rural education in the sense of services, I think, um, and availability and stuff, and there's, there's certainly challenges. Um, but I definitely find School of the Year for my children, has they've, they've blossomed through through that schooling system, yeah. What, what will your plans be when it comes time for high school? Because, I mean, you guys aren't that far. What are we, about 80 k's out of town? Yeah. Out of Catherine, so it's yeah. not too far. Or would you do school there for high school? There, there is a school bus which comes. I think it goes all the way down to the end of the bitumen. Yeah. So almost. So we're, our driveway is twenty five k's, and now I think there's another ten or so. So within forty k's, there's yeah. a school bus. Um, so when we get to that, I think we'd probably look at them going to to school in town. The biggest. Boarding school offloading. <laughs> the biggest thought um, now is there's so little to go on the bus on their own that that distance, 80 k's for a five, six year old, yeah. is quite a distance. And if we did get rain during the day while the kids were at school, we wouldn't be able to get in to pick them up. Yeah. So when they're at high school and they're they're a bit older, they could stay at friends' places without it being as big an issue. But that's a big ask to not be able to pick up your six year old from yeah. school each day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're still here. Um, I'm leaning towards still letting them go on the bus, but that's a ways off yet. And so, and I know you wrote in the story that just if you could share some of your thoughts on people who think that kids growing up in these remote and isolated areas are at a disadvantage, you know, socially and education wise. Um, but I know you had pretty strong feelings on that, that they're not disadvantaged at all. But, and then in some aspects it is an advantage you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I guess when you talk about disadvantage, not, there's there's certainly room for improvement. There's room for improvement everywhere. And I guess I think what they are disadvantaged by, the advantages outweigh that, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. being able to raise my kids out here and have the lifestyle that they have, I think is so beneficial to them that say the social disadvantage you can make steps towards towards lessening that um so i guess as long as they're living as long as you're proactive and you recognize and you try to um counteract um what you think is disadvantaging your kids um then it's that's not so much an issue 
there's always going to be, you know, internet services is always a challenge. I think that's probably the biggest we've found um, is the internet. Um, and the further you're out, I guess the challenges are harder. Um, but I think it's no matter what you're doing in life, there's always going to be a benefit. There's always going to be advantages and disadvantages, and it's a matter of weighing them up. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I feel that my kids, for what they get out here, it's it's well worth it. And you can definitely see it when you meet them. Like, they are some of the most sociable, energetic. Like, they're very sociable because sometimes people would think, oh, they, they're growing up on a station, they don't see people, they'd be very antisocial or not developed. But they are, they can hold a conversation with you. We definitely, we definitely got told time and time again that our kids would be um, not socially inept, I guess is the word, um, and they wouldn't cope in social situations. But it's it's the opposite. I'm trying to tell my kids sometimes to just calm down and, and <laughs> leave people alone. Definitely and social <laughs> butterflies, yeah. And I suppose, like you said, you've got to take those measures to counteract things. And so when you're at Carnegie, that was driving to the boundary fence for a playgroup. And that was on the Plenty Highway that was driving five or six hours to go to playgroup. Yep. And now you're only 80 k's out of town. You can take him into yeah, so you, the, you take him into things. You guys go to camp drafts and other events. And We go to events, yep, to camp drafts and rodeos. The girls go to pony club um, and they go to gymnastics once a week. So it's only an hour into town. So we do our shopping at the same time and they do gymnastics. So they get their social side there. Um, they've also got some good mates in town which come out and visit. Um, so that works really well. Yeah. Brilliant. Now just to finish up, so I don't take up any more of your time. Um, I thought we'd finish up today cause you guys have had so many adventures and experiences. I can see Tusty laughing. <laughs> I'm just so glad that we got that story at the very beginning about you skull dragging that you like, <laughs> what a way to start off the episode. But you know, you guys have been around, you've seen a lot of things, um, had a lot of different experiences, which, and I think it's also what's so great is that it's not the atypical experience that people think of when they think of people in the cattle industry and, and what it's supposed to look like. Like you've been to different places, work with different people. You guys also have a very different attitude to a lot of people I come across. Like you are two of the most down to earth, like soul to the earth, just cruisiest people. You talk to anybody, whether they're like a CEO, I mean, and you do, you, because you're working for a foreign owned station and you deal with some pretty, high up people directly but then you'll go and chat to any old mate on the street like you just whereas not everybody's like that um yeah I guess well-rounded perhaps is a I don't know it sounds weird when you say it like that but I thought if you could just share some parting advice with us of things you've kind of picked up along the way and any advice to anybody who wants to get into the industry um or stay or is already in the industry and just just maybe something you've learned along the way that has kind of helped you stay stay with the industry and stay with this lifestyle. Always go in with a willingness to learn. Doesn't matter how long you've been in the industry for, there's always more to learn. Short and sweet. Pretty good. I um, have always told people that's come to work for us, and I think it's really true, is that stations will either make you or they'll break you. Um, when I first moved out, it's kind of the, the fake it till you make it kind of thing. <laughs> I was just met somebody that happened to move into managing a station and I was instantly a manager's wife um, which itself has quite once you're a manager's wife apparently you know you can muster you can garden you can cook you can clean um, you've got apparently all these <laughs> skills which I had none of at all um, 
Yeah, so it's it, every station has provided me with a different challenge, if not sometimes daily challenges. Um, and yeah, you either you either do it, it'll either make you or it'll break you. There's no in between. What's the best way for someone to for it to make someone and not break them? Like, what can somebody do? To- I think it's your attitude. And the whole fake it till you make it thing. Like, you've got to just know that, you know, you're going to do this and you're going to succeed. And even if you're not doing well that day, put on that smile and and keep faking it until you make it. Because that's how I still get by sometimes in life. Um, But it's worked so far. I just want to touch back on your piece of advice, Dusty, before we wrap up. You said always go in with a willingness to learn. And I just want to get you to expand on that because I think that... Some people will hear that and go, oh, he means for the people that are new to the industry and the people that are, you know, haven't done this as much. But I think that piece of advice really applies to everybody. And you can come across people who say have been working in this industry for five years, ten years, whatever, and they think they haven't got anything left to learn. And, And every property is different and does things differently for their own reasons and to come in and be like oh well but this is how we did it here or oh, i don't I already know how to do that and you're like well no i'm i want you to do it this way and this is why you just just run me through well, that one, one thing i've i've found over all the different stations i've worked on or managed if you go into a job whether it be pulling a ball or working with cattle and you've always done it this one way that doesn't mean it's the only way to do it i've gone to properties where I've learned a different way to you know, rewire a submersible pump and someone's been able to show me a better way than I've been doing it for the last five years. doesn't make their way any better, but if you take what you know and what someone else can teach you, you can find an easier and better way that will work for you. Every property's different. They'll want to muster cattle differently. They'll run their yards differently. They'll have different setups for everything. Doesn't matter if you've been in the industry a day or 20 years. There's always something else you can learn. You'll always come across a problem that you may not know. You may know the answer to, but you may not know the best answer to it. Take advice from other people. Learn from what they know and find what works for you. There are currently over 1,100 compelling true stories on centralstation.net.au, which will open your eyes to what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. There are yarns from station managers, ringers, cooks, govies, pilots, vets and more, told with humour, self-deprecation and pride in a job well done. There are tales of working in stock camps, mustering cattle, and how education and socialisation works in some of the most remote parts of Australia. There's stories about the wonder of living in an amazing landscape, but also the perils that come with flood, fire and drought. And there's stories about the inherent danger of living in isolation, including times when the flying doctor has come to the rescue. These stories paint a vivid picture of outback life, the good, the bad and the dusty.